0: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App
1: World, or Android Market.
2: The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit seventhwavenetwork.com. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung.
1: Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration To a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening and talking about shifting in frequency and vibration we're just in the beginnings of mercury retrograde in the last couple of days and we've been experiencing some of that just now but i'm absolutely delighted that we've managed to hook up with brian forster who is in lima peru brian welcome to the show
3: thank you very much peter
1: And You've had a really interesting journey, and I'd love to hear you start off uh, talking a bit about where you began, which actually was in my part of the world, uh, connected with the Haida peoples of uh, the Pacific Northwest.
3: Yeah, I grew up on the west coast of Canada, and um, at about the age of eight uh, or nine, I became... Quite fascinated with native um, art and oral traditions, mainly because, I guess, at that time in anyone's life, you're you're starting to question, you know, your origins and this, your sense of reality. So I I simply thought that um, the people to question about the area in which I was living uh, would be the native people, since they have uh, been living there for at least ten thousand years. Whereas those of us who are immigrants, um, you know, to the North American continent, um, you know, are you know, our family lines might go back a generation or a few generations, but uh, not enough to uh, have a, a, a complete grasp of you know, the environment and, and the history and uh, that sort of thing of, of that part of the world.
1: And you've obviously been on a really interesting uh, journey moving around so, I mean, in significant places. So what would you say is the greatest insight you, you gathered from the Haida peoples?
3: Um, well, I think it's it's uh, mainly from the oral traditions, the storytelling. What was uh, I guess most profound was the fact that um, in all of the legend, you know, so-called legends, they speak of humanity or humans being on exactly the same level as all other creatures and plants or uh, all other forms of of creation. So it's not as though there's a hierarchy as there is in. Um, you know the stories that i heard as a child coming you know perhaps from uh, from england like peter <laughs> rabbit or you know like you know winnie the pooh and things where it's like animals all that yeah <laughs> well animals dr- animals dressed up in clothing and being anthropomorphic characters yeah right um, you know basically being made fun of um here it's like you know raven has the same level or even superior level of intellect to to that of a human being and i i just found that very you know very intriguing that uh, you know all Life forms were and are treated as if they 're completely equal,
1: yeah, absolutely, and then from there you moved to Maui in Hawaii
3: yeah, that started more or less as a childhood thing again because my parents would uh, you know go to Maui or you know one of the other Hawaiian islands for usually two weeks of the year, uh, basically to get away from us, the children, <laughs> um, but you know the of course the stories of you know the volcanoes and you know the the beautiful blue warm water and things so I pestered my parents enough that by the age of 12 they took uh, my brother and I and I was automatically entranced by uh, again Hawaiian um, oral traditions and things like that and and it took until I was when I was 35 I moved there and spent two years uh, assisting in building a 62 foot long double hulled sailing voyaging canoe.
1: Wow so shifted from carving totem poles to working with uh, the boats
3: exactly and and it actually was a a very major notch up in terms of uh, craftsmanship because we were you know we were building this canoe completely, you know, not like a dugout. It was uh, more or less, uh, I wouldn't say high tech, but more of a European style, what's called cold molding, where it's uh, multiple laminations of of thin layers of wood and fiberglass and carbon fiber and things. So it's, you know, very, very modern boat building that took, um, you know, a major learning curve in terms of my technical abilities in order to uh, achieve it.
1: And again, additional uh, insights and knowledge from the people of Maui, the Hawaiian culture. What, what what came to you about living there and being part of that?
3: Well, what was fortunate for me was the fact that because I was involved in a Hawaiian uh, cultural project, I became you know, quite rapidly adopted by a number of people and especially the old um, Hawaiian aunties. You know, any any old <laughs> any 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 Hawaiian female elder is called an auntie. And so um especially Auntie Pua, uh, who is um, descended from, you know, Hawaiian royalty, she adopted me, you know, oh, beautiful. Basi- basically. It's called being Hanaid, which means that you become part of the family even though genetically you're not not part of it, and uh, just through spending time with her, uh, you know, and her storytelling, um, she just taught me uh, a number of different uh, insights into the history of the Hawaiian people, which, as far as I can tell, um, has not been written down in in books. You know, just fascinating in terms of of their their possible origins in Tahiti and. And the stories get even more fascinating because um, some of the Hawaiian elders and other people told me that it was actually the Hawaiians that were the, the original, you know, so-called Polynesians and that they were the ones who, um, you know, went to Tahiti and and um, started the Tahitian culture. <laughs> so, it'll, you know, the, de- the deeper you go, the farther it goes back in time, even to, um, you know, echoes of this, of the lost continent of Mu, which some of the Hawaiian elders very strongly believe you know existed 12 to you know 20,000 years ago
1: so this is actually part of my my questioning here was was taking you from the Haida to Maui then to Peru and I was actually going to ask you later on was that was that whole journey of yours connected to the lost civilization of Mu actually
3: well it's uh yeah that's a very good question because in fact um, subconsciously I guess that's what I've been doing it hasn't been a conscious search for the origins or the possible existence of Mu, because that, to me, for you know, to a great extent, is um, you know quite fictitious. But uh, the more that I've been researching on the fringes of the Pacific Ocean and deep in the you know areas of Polynesia, the more this concept of this ancient you know culture and continent keep coming back and back. And uh, that is part of what I'm I'm investigating in Peru now. Is this um, Pacific-wide connection of people, um, and the one thing which um, is a characteristic of, of that are uh, this uh, this group of people, you know, called the Viracochins by some, who were these very tall, light-skinned and reddish, rusty-haired, colored people who seem to have been, you know, one of the oldest cultures, at least in the Pacific Ocean area, pre, you know, pre-Polynesian, pre-Inca, etc.
1: So, I know nothing about them, so just fill us in a bit more on the viracochins
3: well the uh, The basic story is that uh, uh, the name uh, or, or the word viracocha refers to the creator so with the Inca, for example, uh, their creator deity was called Viracocha. Um, some people refer to inti, which is the sun, as being the creator. But what uh, you know, if you do enough research, what you find out is that the sun or Inti, which is the Quechua word for the sun, um, is the physical manifestation of the creator, and the creator essence or spirit was Viracocha. In the distant past, these people appeared who were called or named the Viracochans, as in the representatives of the creator, and they're commonly described as being you know tall in stature light colored in skin and again rusty kind of red hair sometimes even blondish hair uh, the problem is that that um, has been smacking of racism to some native people because they're, they then automatically accuse uh, you know European researchers such as myself or European um, descendants as stating that their cultures were you know begun by Europeans and I'm not saying that whatsoever what I'm saying is that um, the ancient Spanish chronicles state that these people were light colored in skin, but we have no idea where they came from.
1: And and what sort of area are we talking about that they uh, apparently came from?
3: well we don 't actually know where where uh, where they came from because oral traditions, as you probably know, tend to be very poetic in nature um, you know for example with the, with the inca it's it's said that um, the first Inca either descended from the skies or rose from the waters of lake titicaca, and that of course is a is a poetic kind of statement, meaning that they came from the area of uh, of Lake Titicaca but the thing is that uh these um these people these Viracochin people um show up in different parts of the pacific including uh new zealand aotearoa or at least the descendants did and also in hawaii so and of course Rapa Nui, or easter island that's where the the so-called long-eared people are spoken of um so it seems to be the same people in general or the same people specifically visited and were teachers in all of these different parts of the Pacific Ocean.
1: Isn't that interesting? So Easter Island and, and uh, New Zealand then must be on your shopping list of places to go and live or be, at least spend some time.
3: Exactly. They're number one and number two. Uh, the
0: <laughs> the others are...
3: Oh yeah exactly. Well the, the you know the fascinating thing about Easter Island for example is of course the moai which are the you know the great stone statues. Um Dr. Robert Shock if you've heard of him he's done a lot of work with um or in Egypt in terms of aging the you know determining the actual age of the sphinx etc and um he was On Easter Island or Rapa Nui, I think about two years ago, and he found two distinguishing features about these moai. These big, you know, the big stone heads. One is that the oldest ones are made of basalt, which is a very hard stone. And the more recent ones, of which there are a much greater number, are made out of a softer volcanic tuff. So it seems that the older ones, the basalt ones, were made by one culture, and then the softer stone ones were made by another, or by a, a, a following culture. And that's where you get into the concept of the long eared people as compared to the short eared people.
1: Wow. Well, it's going to be really interesting to to follow your journey, as as I think it looks like you may well be rediscovering Mu and uh, the different constituents of that. That's fascinating.
3: Well, it seems like it, and actually, logically, the most, to me at least, the most logical place that mu uh, could still exist would be Hawaii, because um, while I was living there, we found out by looking at uh, at topographical maps that during the ice age, uh, the uh, of course, the ocean level was so. During the last ice age, uh, Maui, Molokai, Lanai, and Olave which are now separate islands, would have been a single landmass. Um, that doesn't make it a continent, but that makes it a very large landmass, you know, very much in the middle of the Pacific, a very strategic point if you're a, a seafarer because that would be a, a great place to stop uh, in order to replenish supplies such as water and food.
1: Very interesting stuff, Brian. I'm really going to be... Th- fascinated to follow your journey as Moo rediscovers you and you rediscover it. We're going to our first break now and we'll be back with Brian Forster talking about Peru and eventually talking about the elongated skulls. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation.
0: Stay connected.
2: Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iRadioblog.com.
4: Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to myheartcenteredjourney.com for more information.
2: You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tongue. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program.
1: Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Please do check out my website, www.petertung.com. And also www.myheartcenteredjourney.com where our Ambassadors of Light program is really flourishing with uh, people tuning in to our call every couple of weeks to let us all know what's going on in the world which is pretty significant at the moment. I have with me today Brian Forster who is joining us from Lima, Peru. And Brian, after that first fascinating uh, section, let's now talk about Peru because you chose to move there from Maui uh, at some point in your Illustrious career.
3: Well, actually, I moved back to Canada, uh, or actually the oh. U.S., uh, where I lived for two years, and th- then I moved back to Canada. But it was um, it was my fascination with um, you know the oral traditions of native people, and uh, you know the history that uh, drew me from there um, to. Basically, Peru to um, initially study the Inca, but um, since then, all of the um, you know the the studying and and, and work I've been doing uh, in Hawaii and um, visiting Tahiti and even the west coast of Canada, it's all started to coalesce into you know into one big topic, which seems to be the lost continent of Mu, but.
1: <laughs> So you've written a book on the uh, on the uh, brief history of the Incas, so just tell us about some of the key elements in that
3: sure well basically the uh, the thing is that um, uh, uh, upon visiting Cusco, which of course was the um, the capital of the Inca, I was having a very difficult time trying to find a nice small book um, that Talked about Inca history um, that was in English. Most of the books in uh, Cusco are in Spanish, even though there are so many um, English speaking tourists who uh, visit there. So, my uh, girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, who is Peruvian, said, Well, why don't you write a book? (laughs) So, uh, that's exactly what I did. And that was my very first book, which is now in its uh, second edition. Um, And since then, I've written. Uh, three other books uh, directly relating uh, to the Inca culture.
1: And, and what are the key elements that uh, is important for our listeners to understand about the Inca and the Inca culture?
3: Well, I guess the most important thing is that um, unfortunately a number of the tour guides in Cusco are not as well informed as, as one would think. Um, especially when it comes to things like the megalithic uh, structures there, which you know have been the object of curiosity, you know, for 500 years. Um, what's what we now know is that the Inca didn't build uh, the majority of the megalithic structures. They come from a much older culture. But uh, most of the tour guides in Cusco will tell you that the Inca built everything. It's simply, you know, it's simply not the case. Um, too much has been ascribed to to the Inca having uh, having uh, created um, when the, the situation um, is far more complicated and covers a much greater timeline, more like um, 10,000 years rather than you know, 800 years.
1: And what have you gathered about the older culture? What do you know about them?
3: Well, the strongest connection that I and others have is that um, it's known that the Inca came from Tiwanaku, which is on the southern shore of Lake Titicaca, Um, and there we have the enigmatic enigmatic places such as, uh, well, of course, Tiwanaku itself and also Pumapunku, and through different dating techniques, um, not the conventional ones, but um, using archaeoastronomy, for example, it's quite probable that uh, the Tiwanaku-Pumapunku area is, or shows signs of, of of having been initially constructed at least at um, 10 to 15,000 years ago. So since the Inca themselves came from that area, it's quite probable that they descended from the master megalithic builders who originally inhabited um, those two places.
1: Wow, fascinating. And... and- obviously the 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 Inca are very much wrapped up in in the conquistadors coming from Spain what, what do you know about that
3: well that's a very good point because actually half of my book is about the interaction between the Spanish and the Inca because what uh, the question I started out with when I uh, started writing my book was how could a hundred and sixty Basically, um, soldiers of fortune from Spain, none of these were really, um, you know, trained military people. How could 160 of them have taken over a civilization that had a standing army of 100,000? Um, and so the story that I cover um, it 's about sixty to seventy pages in my book of the step by step process by which um you know the whole thing unfolded. The major thing that happened was that there was a civil war that occurred in uh, or within the Inca civilization just prior to the arrival of the spanish, and that was. You know, more or less the downfall of the Inca themselves, coupled with the fact that um, European diseases such as smallpox had arrived there about 10 years before, having been transmitted through the native population beginning in Panama, which was a major Spanish base about 1510 to 1520. And it naturally moved through the, uh, moved south through the native population by the time it hit. uh, what was the Inca civilization. It, uh, it had destroyed probably, you know, a third to half of the population before the Spanish showed
1: up. Well, that's amazing. So is that generally accepted as being the, the historical facts or is that something that you've, you've worked out for yourself? Um,
3: I don't really know. You know, for, for, myself <laughs> it, well, for myself, it makes a lot of sense. The trouble is that all, you know, all written history is subjective. Um, so a lot of the Spanish chronicles are stilted towards the Spanish view. Um, and, you know, the descendants of the Spanish who live here in, in Peru now are still, you know, quite strongly, you know, pro, you know pro-Spanish and pro-Conquistador. Um, but the the studies that are, or the uh, the chronicles that I've been analyzing the most are those written by the few Inca descendants. Uh, the, the most famous one being uh, Garcilaso de la Vega, who was half um, royal-blooded Inca. And I think his account is the most comprehensive and realistic
1: and in terms of the spiritual side of things, what happened to the the uh, the Incas that were in the spir- the spiritual awareness, the spiritual know, what happened to them? where did they go when they, obviously when they, when they fell, the civilization fell into ruin, and the conquistadors came? How did they protect look after their real spiritual truths what happened
3: well that 's a very good point because um, in fact you know the the nature of the inca civilization was the the sapa inca who was the highest official of royal bloodline he was the equivalent of the you know of a high chief and so the difference between uh, you know the european cultures and the native cultures is that someone who is a chief you know, doesn't stand on the top of the, you know, on the top of the pyramid and, and is necessarily thought of as being a god. He is responsible for all of the people. So, once um, Atahualpa, who was the last of the of the high Incas, was murdered by the Spanish, the entire civilization collapsed because he, you know, he was… Um, the pinnacle in terms of being the the final decision maker. He wasn't like an overlord, but he was, he was the one that everyone looked to to make decisions as to what to do in terms of the military, you know, spirit, in spiritual aspects, and in terms of the government. Um, also, as a result of the civil war, Atahualpa, who was half-blooded Inca, uh, murdered almost in the entire Inca royal family about six months before the Spanish arrived. And so the few uh, royal-blooded Inca who were able to escape, and that included the entire you know, high class of, uh, of priestly people, they either escaped into the jungles of the Amazon or up onto the um, the almost very top of the sacred mountain called um, Ausangate outside of Cusco. And so, all that seems to remain now uh, of the the strong spiritual authority or knowledge is amongst the they're called the Caro people, and. Uh, I think the the problem is that a lot of people think the Caro are Inca. They're not. They seem to have been a priestly class of people, but they're very quite or they're quite diminutive in size. Whereas the Inca were quite tall people. So the Caro, who still survive and are quite you know quite uh, quiet and shy people, they are what's left of the the spiritual legacy of the Inca.
1: Ah, oh, okay. And Machu Picchu, did the conquistadors discover it?
3: No, Machu Picchu was. Um, was one of two sacred cities that we know of that um, was never found by the the conquistadors. The other one is called Chokeki Rao, which is equal in its grandeur. It's just, it's not as famous as Machu Picchu, and it's much harder to get to. But it's it's equal in terms of its grandeur. Uh, The whole story of Machu Picchu, you know, would would be an interview within itself because there are, (laughs) There are a lot of, of misconceptions about what it represented, what it stood for, and how it functioned, and unfortunately, that's uh, it's another sad story. Uh, a lot of the, of the guides at Machu Picchu are, you know, unfortunately, are not as well in- informed as they could be, and I'm not saying that from a, a viewpoint of my own arrogance, it's just that I've been studying this, you know, doggedly for five years almost every day, and so, um, you know... Uh, I, you know, my education on Machu Picchu will never be complete, but every day I I do learn something. Um, It's a, you know, it's a very significant site, but I I also feel like it's it's kind of overemphasized. There are so many beautiful megalithic structures and um, places in uh, Cusco and the Sacred Valley, which are almost as fascinating as Machu Picchu, but um, people make this beeline to Machu Picchu, and... You know, bypassing all all the rest of these amazing places, such as especially Ollantaytambo is is one huge complex which um, the average uh, tourist or visitor will spend li- like an hour or two at. And uh, in the tours I give, we devote at least an entire eight hour day to it.
1: So we'll come back to your tours in in, in a, after the break. But just in one just in a very short word, why why wouldn't they have found Machu Picchu? Why was it so hard to find?
3: Well, the very short story of Machu Picchu is that it was the equivalent of, of Camp David is to the U.S. president. So, um, it was located outside of Cusco on purpose because um, it was a place um, as the Inca civilization grew, you know, to become huge. Basically, it was uh, it covered from uh, the, the southern part of Colombia. To down south to about the middle section of Chile west to the Pacific Ocean and east into the Amazon and so once it became that kind of size uh the spiritual people, the government people, and the military people needed a central location in order to be able to discuss you know, sensitive affairs of state without the general public you know, sticking their noses in. So much so of which was. Brian,
1: we actually are coming up to our, our break, so we'll, we'll just continue finishing this fascinating discussion after our next break. Spirit of Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation.
2: What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network
4: by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently to be fully involved in the conscious co creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to myheartcenteredjourney.com for more information.
2: To perform at your maximum potential. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tung. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program.
1: Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Just before the break, uh, Brian Forster was talking to us about Machu Picchu and its uh, significance as the civilization uh, in the area grew so, so tremendously. So just continue uh, t- about Machu Picchu, Brian.
3: Okay, well, I think um, actually, uh, you know, the important thing again is that Machu Picchu was more or less the equivalent of, of Camp David. It was a very um, highly secure place where affairs of state could be um, discussed. Um, in terms of the military, the um, the religious people, um, the the government, etc., um, away from, far enough away from Cusco, and uh, the climate at Machu Picchu, because it's a about two and a half thousand feet lower than Cusco is much uh, gentler and nicer. So it was the you know it was a combination of of a, a sort of spa rest place as well as being um, a you know a major con- or the major conference center. Uh, there are only two trails that um, that um, access Machu Picchu, and so that way it was easy for the. Um, uh, s- uh, security forces to be able to make sure that no one could could enter while the you know affairs of state were being discussed. Uh, the reason why it uh, uh, escaped the uh, you know the Spanish was simply because it was so isolated and and is to you know to this present day. Most people, when they gonna get, uh, get off the train, they think automatically they'll see Machu Picchu in the distance, but it's uh, about a twenty five minute, uh, quite harrowing bus ride up hairpin turns to get to. Uh, the point where you actually see the location of it, uh, you know, which is a ma- majestic tour by itself.
1: Wow. Interesting. So you lead these sacred site uh, tours yourself in the area uh, of Cusco, and, and you mentioned the Sacred Valley. So uh, you obviously are an expert, and so you, you know the local uh, lay of the land and the, and the key places to go to. So just tell our listeners a little bit about the, the trips that you lead.
3: Well, there are a number of different ones. Uh, usually, we start. Um, I usually do four to seven day ones, but um, on occasion, I'll do like a single day tour. Um, we we normally start with a tour of uh, Inca Cusco itself, and so we we walk through the streets of Cusco, and I I point out uh, the megalithic buildings which were either built by the Inca, but um, the majority of them were built before Inca times, and then after that, we do a tour. Um, of one or two days within the Sacred Valley to places like Pisac and um, Ollantaytambo, which, again, were occupied by the Inca, but were constructed in some cases up to 10,000 or 12,000 years ago um, initially. And then after that, uh, Machu Picchu, of of course, is a one or or two day trip. We also go down towards uh, the area of Lake Titicaca to go to Pumapunku and Tiwanaku as well as Nazca, and uh, my present fascination, which is the Paracas area just south of Lima, by about four hours um, by bus, and that's where the elongated skull people are. But uh, the emphasis that that my wife and I give, and those that work with us, is that we give you the you know the, the entire history of Cusco and the Sacred Valley. Most uh, tour companies will talk about the Inca period, which started about 1200 A.D., but we go back in time. Um, as I said, at least 10,000 or 20,000, or in some cases, 20,000 years, which, um, of course, the archaeologists don't want to hear about. But uh, every single tour that, uh, that we give is a research opportunity for me. And, and uh, on each trip, I learn something more uh, about the megalithic nature and a little bit more about the megalithic builders who were, you know, simply amazing in terms of what they were able to achieve
1: what was the in terms of the megalithic structures? What was the main reason for creating those structures?
3: That question, um, at this point, I honestly can't answer. It's um, uh, my study is more about um, how they could possibly have, have achieved it, because again, a lot of the tour guides will say that the Inca had slaves, and so you know, the 120-ton um, andesite blocks were, you know, dragged from the quarries by these, you know, chains of 10 or, you know, 2 or 3 or 10,000 people, which is, you know, quite ridiculous. It seems, obviously, that, you know, some form of what we call magic was involved in that the megalithic builders had an incredibly um, powerful sense of, you um, of the nature of, not only, not simply the nature of reality, but the nature of the physical laws. And so they were able to, in some way, neutralize gravity and, um, you know, push these stones not along the ground, but probably slightly levitated above the ground as, this, as if they were styrofoam blocks. And this is, you know, this isn't backed up at this point by science, but it's backed up by the oral traditions who say that. They say that the high priest would chant um, at a specific stone and that a whole group of other priests again would would join in and by doing that the stone itself would would you know would literally rise off the ground and then the workers could simply you know, push it as it floated perhaps a foot or two off the ground and move uh, these stones into place, again, as if they were styrofoam. Um, that's something that the Inca could, you know, simply couldn't do. And the Inca stated that to the um, the uh, early Spanish, um, especially when Sacsayhuaman, which is, where these 120-ton blocks are, uh, which is a so-called fortress above Cusco, uh, the Spanish were shocked by what they saw because they had seen nothing in Europe on that scale. And so they said, did you build this? And the Inca always said, no. Uh, the same thing with Tiwanaku. Uh, when the Spanish first went there, they asked the you know, the local people and the Inca who were there, did you build this? And they, the Inca always said, no. But unfortunately... In the modern tourist industry, um, again, you know, I'm not trying to bash all the guides, but unfortunately too many of them say the Inca did it and, you know, they were supermen. And, you know, if the Inca themselves said they didn't build it, then, you know, that's proof enough for me.
1: Absolutely. Isn't it fascinating, though, this technology existed in South America as well as Egypt and and, uh, South Africa, places around the world we still don't know the technology, but clearly sound frequency and intention is a part of it.
3: Exactly. And it seemed, you know, um, people talk about, you know, technology in terms of high technology. It's, it could have simply been the, uh, the ability of these people to, um, again, to understand the concept of, um, or, you know, the physical laws so well that they had natural ways of bypassing um, that which we find impossible without tools. And that's what's you know that's what's quite amazing. I I do know um, some of the listeners might know Christopher Dunn, who wrote a, a great um, couple of books. One of them is called the Giza Power Plant. And Chris is a no nonsense engineer, being that he um, anything that he studies, whether it's in Egypt, um, you know, at the pyramids, for example. Or at Pumapunku, um, he studies them as an engineer does. And so um, I've been able to ask him personally questions about how he thinks um, some of these things were achieved. And um, he you know, he states quite plainly that uh, these ancient people, uh, perhaps, um, he'll never give a timeline, but again, we're working with more or less uh, around the time of the so-called you know, flood, as in, um, the ice age uh, end of the ice age period and he you know he simply states these people must have had technology of some kind not exactly what we have but something akin to that in order to achieve you know these uh, absolutely astonishing works they you know they could not have used the inca tools which were at hand which were bronze uh, chisels and stone hammers yeah,
1: absolutely So let's uh, move on because we need to spend some time chatting about your latest project, the elongated skulls. Just uh, fill us in on that one.
3: Okay, well, actually, my interest in that began, um, again, when I was writing my first book about the Inca, uh, a brief history of the Incas, because at the Coricancha, which was the spiritual center of Cusco, and therefore the spiritual center of the entire Inca civilization, there's a tiny museum in the basement. And there on display were these four elongated, you know, cone head type skulls, which had labels that stated Inca on them. And so I thought, well, that's strange, because I had seen photographs from the Tiwanaku Museum and also the major museum in La Paz, which is the capital of Bolivia, of uh, uh, skull samples that were taken from Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, and they as well had these elongated skulls. So I thought, well, if the Inca, in fact, came from Tiwanaku, then genetically um, the skulls that are on display at Tiwanaku and La Paz are probably... either their relatives indirectly or their ancestors directly. And so I thought, well, this is starting to get into the idea that the Inca were, as the chronicles say, a physically different kind of human being than the local population. Um, Because what is known about the Inca was that it was a royal priestly family, uh, Inca does not refer to every citizen. It refers to a very small group of people. At the absolute maximum, there were possibly 1,000 of them amongst a population at the height of the civilization of probably 12 million. Um, so they were a royal blood, uh, bloodline that only bred within, you know, within their family. Um, and so… The elongated skull thing I thought was, uh, you know, was quite interesting. And the more research that I've been doing is that uh, the other area of Peru where you find this um, phenomenon of, of the elongated skull is again this area called Paracas, which is uh, four hours south of Lima by bus, and that's where you find skulls which are astonishingly large. As in, um, you know, head binding is what most people say. Uh, was what was uh, responsible for this um, this, um, mal-shaping or altering of the shape of the skull. But I've seen examples at the Eka Museum, which is close to Paracas, where the cranial volume of the skull would be between two and two and a half times that of an average human being. And so that starts to suggest that what we're looking at is not... Necessarily, what we call human, and i've been able to find at least five major physical characteristics within these skulls that are very abnormal in terms of um they're not what you would commonly find in a in a human skull whether whether it's in Africa or you know Asia or North America or europe so- it's uh,
1: Brian, we're coming up to our final break, so let's come back with that topic uh, on our return about these five characteristics of the uh, elongated skulls. Peter Tung here for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Do you want
4: to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you, to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to myheartcenteredjourney.com for more
0: information.
2: You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tung. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program.
1: Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. I'm your host, Peter Tung having a fascinating discussion today with Brian Forster. Before we go back to the elongated skulls, Brian, just give us uh, your websites and information that people can contact you if they want to go on a trip with you or gather more information from your work.
3: Sure. My main website is uh, hiddenincatours.com. That's all one word. Uh, and that is not... Uh, the, that is my main website. It's, uh, that's where you can contact me through, uh, through email. Um, it's also quite a major resource website. It's not simply a, a tour website, but um, I have links to uh, 490 YouTube videos that I've made so far. Um, a lot of, of uh, photographs and all sorts of things like that. So it's a resource for you know for travelers beyond simply uh, being a, a tour site. Um, I'm also on Facebook. It's Brian Forster, B R I E N F O E R S T E R. And uh, if you want to look up uh, my YouTube videos, independent of my website, it's Brian Forster, all one word.
1: Okay, great. And you've got a major event coming up uh, around the 11, 11, 11 in November, do you not?
3: Oh, yes, that's true. With uh, Megalithomania from uh, from England, uh, Hugh Newman, who is in charge of Megalithomania, will be uh, traveling with me and also David Hatcher Childress, the, the famous author uh, who I am presently co-authoring a book with. Uh, the three of us will be guiding... Uh, Tour from the 10th until the 20th of of November, starting at Lake Titicaca and looking at all of the major megalithic sites there and in Cusco and the Sacred Valley, including, of course, a trip to Machu Picchu. And after that, there'll be a four-day extension for those people who wish to go to the Nazca area and see the Nazca lines, as well as the uh, elongated skulls of the Paracas culture as well.
1: Sounds like a pretty... uh amazing opportunity and there's an outside chance i may actually meet you there brian
3: that'd be great peter
1: <laughs> so you just mentioned david hatcher childress and he's involved with you in writing this book about the elongated skull so let's go back to that and just tell us if you were talking about these five characteristics that are different from a typical human skull
3: okay well the main thing um you know people will have to visualize a little bit here but um with your skull or any skull you find of any living human being on earth there's one characteristic which is very specific, and that's there are three major cranial plates that make up your skull. Uh, there's what's called the frontal plate, which is where your forehead is, and then behind that there are two plates called the parietal plates, and they form almost like a like a, a T uh, shape in terms of these suture lines that connect the three together and in a baby it's it's these three plates that uh, that grow and then uh, and then eventually form um together creating the normal shape of of a skull and that's where um, the deformation has been done culturally in Africa, on the island of Malta in Iraq um, Melanesia and Peru creating this elongated shape but I found examples in Peru, specifically in the Paracas area where these uh, there are skulls that only have two plates, they have one parietal and one frontal plate and uh, researchers such as Lloyd pi that i'm in uh, contact with who is the caretaker of the star child skull he said that can't be a human characteristic um other things are the fact that uh, a number of these skulls do not show signs of having molars not even uh the pits where the molar you know teeth would fit um which is strange because these people would have lived on a very um, heavy diet of corn and so you need the molars to grind you know grind the corn but uh that is something lacking. Another thing is the jaws are very, you know, much larger than a, a normal human being, and there are two holes in the back of the head, which um, Lloyd Pye has uh, stated he believes that that's where nerve endings and blood vessels would come out, in order for uh, the body to be able to, you know. Uh, Feed that you know, the, the fact that the skull is much larger than normal that that's something nature would have done in order to prov- provide nutrition and, um, and nerve sensitivity to that part of the skull. So, again, that shows that uh, there's some kind of natural evolutionary aspect to this rather than simply being a, a ceremonial um, thing that was done. Um, and, you're,
1: and you're currently involved in some DNA testing, aren't you, in this work?
3: Exactly. uh, Lloyd has 10 samples of DNA that I sent to him from five different skulls and i actually come from a scientific background i have a bachelor's degree from uh, actually from uvic as in university ah, of victoria yeah. and and so that you know that's been lying dormant for quite a long time but as soon as the <laughs> as soon as uh, we started to get into this idea of having um, you know uh, dna sampling done my um, scientific mind turned back on and i was quite rigorous in terms of the sampling and making sure that everything was was sterile everything was labeled and making sure that i took at least two samples from each skull, in order that we have, a, you know, a broad base. Um, once the evidence comes in, that we, you know, that it can't be said that one is, you know, if one is anomalous, then of course we don't have a, a scientific uh, result. But I, I was able to take uh, skin samples, hair samples, uh, a tooth sample, and some bone containing marrow, so that we can access the mitochondrial uh, DNA from them.
1: So what are you hoping to uh, understand and learn from the results of the DNA?
3: Well, again, trying to be scientific in in mind, I have no preconceptions or no no ideas right now because the ramifications could be quite bizarre. So um, I'm simply waiting. We're hoping to start uh, to get some results within a month, um, and then by October we should have quite a good idea. If need be, I do have other samples, and what I'm going to be doing is uh, getting, uh, taking samples from other elongated skulls as they you know, come into my life in order to build up as strong a body of evidence as we can. Um, the implications could be quite intriguing. Um, Lloyd Pye and others are talking about the possibility that these are hybrid humans as an evidence of you know, off-world, you know, so-called uh, genetic input. But um, I'm not going to go there right now because it's just too, you know, uh, I, I don't want to, you know, wind up saying something and then, you know, being uh, be called an idiot in a couple of months. I'd rather say no opinion, and then if it turns <laughs> out to be fascinating, I'll say, well, there it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, then, but you obviously must have uh, considered the connection with Egypt and Arcanetan in that time period
3: exactly but uh, if you know Stephen mailer who's a, a independent egyptologist um and a very intelligent man um he has you know he's physically seen um tutankhamun's uh, skull for example and uh, other members of the amarna family who you know akhenaten was was uh, and tutankhamun were members of the what's called the amarna family or, or amarna family and he said that uh, there's nothing he could see that shows that the, head, the the skulls are larger than normal he said um they're mis- or they're of a different shape as an elongated but the cranial capacity doesn't look like it's uh, much more massive than uh, you know, conventional humans are whereas the Paracas ones as far as I can tell so far are the only examples we have in the world that are again, you know, they have cranial capacity of 2 to 2.5 that of a, a normal human being
1: And you're, you're actually going to be uh, moving there shortly to take up a new position in Paracas
3: yeah, that's true. I've been given the title of assistant uh, museum director, and so my wife and I are in the process of, uh, of building a house um, in Paracas, and it'll be great because uh, right now we're living in Lima, you know, which is a city of 10 million, and I'm not much of an urbanite, so it'll be a lot nicer to uh, live in a little seaside town like that and still be close enough to Nazca and Cusco and Tiwanaku. Uh, and even the you know the Lima International Airport to be able to um, maneuver quite well.
1: Now you were talking about potentially having a book out uh, earlier with David Hatcher Childress. Is that still scheduled for this year?
3: It is. We're hoping for October. Uh, David and I are, are have broken it up into chapters. Uh, we're each going to be doing about fifty percent, and it's going to be an analysis of the. Um, Elongated skull phenomenon around the world, including, of course, uh, the Amarna in Egypt, um, other uh, groups in Africa, uh, Malta, northern Iraq, um, Melanesia, and Peru, and a few other areas. And then after that, I'm planning on writing my own book um, specifically about the Paracas uh, people and their possible connections with – you know, other parts of the Pacific, because Paracas is right on the Pacific Ocean. And I'm a, I'm a very strong believer in the concept that uh, ancient human beings, you know, several thousand years ago were very easily able to uh, to travel across not only the Atlantic, but the Pacific. Um, I see no reason why conventional academics say that, you know, that it was impossible for them to do uh you know, you know for them to build ships and, and understand the concept of sailing because that's something i learned about in my time in polynesia that uh the concept of um celestial navigation is not as complicated as some people would have you believe um so why you know why couldn't someone ten thousand years ago build a boat have a sail and travel even from africa to north america
1: yeah we're coming up to the end of the, the show uh brian it's been a really fascinating journey can you just give us a 30 seconds on the NASCAR lines and what you think they are?
3: Yeah, the latest evidence I found about Nazca is that um, it's divided into two timelines. You have the, the lines, of course, and then you also have the animal figures. What seems to be the case is that the Paracas people were the makers of the animal figures. Uh, that could only have been done from the sky, whether by balloon or by, you know, flying saucer, who knows. But uh, the lines themselves came later. Um, Really obvious evidence of that is the fact that the famous spider figure, if you look at any picture, you'll see that lines are carved straight through it, as if the builders of the lines, who were the Nazca people, did that without even being conscious of the fact that they were, you know, traversing a- across the animals the lines themselves can be made from the ground you can see them from the ground because i was there a month or two ago and i, I could see that the animal figures can't be seen from the ground um but uh, just in closing the the uh, the lines themselves probably were made to follow aqua or aquifer systems water systems underneath uh-huh. the ground okay. and okay. not made by aliens
1: <laughs> okay Well, Brian, it's been an absolutely fascinating time spent with you. It's gone really quickly. I really appreciate your time. And good luck with the DNA samples for the uh, elongated skulls.
3: Well, thank you very much, Peter. And I hope you can uh, join Hugh Newman and David Childress and myself in November and uh, explore the megaliths of Peru and Bolivia.
1: We'll see what we can do. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure so my guest next week actually is Andrea Matthews who has her own show following this one on uh, 7th Wave Network of Voice America and she'll be talking about authentic living I hope you've enjoyed today's show it's Peter Tung for awakening to conscious co-creation